All right, we made it to episode two, unbelievably so. This is the PR and Law Podcast. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Cam McMurchie, and I'm here with you and Christy. Hello, everyone. Yeah, we actually have a lot to uh, a lot to get to today. We've got a packed uh, uh, show rundown to go through. So before we get to that, though, I do want to uh, deal with a couple of housekeeping matters. Um, this is a new podcast. Obviously, we're, we're, we're testing this out. We're seeing how it's going to go. Um, so we really appreciate if you if you like the show, please share it with a friend. Please mention it to somebody um, or leave a review on sort of any of your preferred pos- podcast uh, uh, directories. That would really help us a lot. And it obviously means a lot to us. Um, and you can also uh, check us out on social media because we are on there. We're posting some information from time to time. Um, the uh, username on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is all PR Law Pod. So that's P-R-L-A-W. P-O-D, and you will find the show. So we definitely want to hear from you on there. Let's jump into it, uh, Ewan. What is happening now in Canada with COVID-19 and in, in, in the U.S., North America in general? Well, yeah, it was another uh, another week of mostly bad news, um, which everybody's pretty familiar with, I guess, at, at this point. Um, one of the big pieces of news was that Canada has decided to extend border restrictions with the U.S. for another 30 days. Um, and to put that in some context, I mean, on a typical day, we're looking at 200,000 people passing between the borders. So, um, you know, probably small potatoes by uh, mainland China and Hong Kong standards, but still obviously a, a huge, huge deal. Um, the prime minister spoke about how he thinks it's a good idea to keep that border closed. Um, I think most Canadians um, share that perspective. Uh, there was some talk earlier in the week, um, but by the Trump administration that because Canada has been doing rather well in sort of uh, fighting back the, the COVID cases that they may consider reopening the border. And then that was quickly quashed by, by the Canadian government. So we've got that new cases are down in Ontario, um, which is a good thing. Um, we're looking at daily growth of about 8.6% as compared to over 15 the week before. Um, and we're now all toll in Canada. I think we're just over 32,000 cases and about 1,300 deaths. Um, in the U.S., obviously, things are still looking pretty pretty dire. Um, there are almost 700,000 cases now confirmed with, um, you know, they're getting close to 37,000 deaths. So, um, I mean, these numbers just continue to be staggering, Cam. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm sort of following the coverage from from there. I mean, the good news is it looks like like New York has, um, I believe their governor said uh, past the peak or or is on on the on the decline. I can't remember his exact words, but basically, uh, so yeah. far, yeah, the 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 worst fears have not panned out, and it looks like they're in a little better shape. But it's still, I mean, they're still having a lot of people dying each day, so it's far from over. Well, and I mean, the unemployment claims, I mean, U.S., they're now looking at 22 million unemployed or people applying for unemployment benefits in one month. And I saw that, you know, when you kind of combine that number with the 7.1 million Americans, I think there were unemployed prior to the whole four week stretch, we're looking at a total of 29 million Americans unemployed, which is almost eight. 18% 18% of total workforce. That's higher than the rates they saw in 1938. I mean, it's just unbelievable numbers. Yeah, I uh, I heard on a <clears throat> on a uh, Vox podcast uh, this week 
um, that even in the in, in in 1929 and in other financial crises or recessions, we've never had this many unemployed so quickly. And that's the the startling thing. Um, you know, they were comparing it more to um, you know an earthquake or a hurricane, uh, which would be regional normally, uh, but this is sort of impacting a lot of a lot of countries in the world at the same time. So it's really it really is un- unprecedented. Absolutely. Um, over here, uh, believe it or not, it's full time back to the office tomorrow. So uh, all this week in Hong Kong, we had between one and five new cases each day. And I think we had one on, on Friday. Um, it's really been brought under control, in fact. And so uh, I actually was in the office for a couple of days last week because uh, we sort of had split shift uh, people going in uh, sort of A and B team. Uh, but now, you know, I was I was out on, on Friday afternoon. The malls were packed. The city is full. I mean, it's it's almost like we've gone back to normal. Obviously, everyone is still wearing a mask. Um, but with human-to-human transmission and the new cases, I mean, approaching zero on a day-to-day basis, I think people now feel much more comfortable uh, going out there. And it's it's a good sign. I think it's a good sign for... We're back in North America, too, because it, it can be beat. It's going to take some time and some discipline, and everyone's got to pitch in, but but you can get there. Yeah, well, that that's really encouraging to hear. I mean, I, I know that the prime minister here in Canada was in talks earlier this week with the premiers um, and looking at, you know, strategies and timetables for gradually um, easing some of the restrictions. So, you know, those discussions... Are, are at least being had now, which is encouraging. I, I understand, obviously, in the United States, um, the, the, the case is, is quite similar in that regard. I, I mean, I'm, we're hoping, certainly hoping that these numbers continue to drop over the coming weeks and that some of the restrictions can be eased sooner than, sooner than later. Yeah, and I think people in the U.S. are getting uh, a little bit antsy. Uh, I don't know if you saw the photos of the crowded beaches in Florida and also the protests in other parts of the country. Uh, I think there's people that feel this is just, uh, it's gone too far and the government is is taking control and sort of restricting their rights and freedoms. And, uh, you know, that I, I understand where people are coming from. I do, I, I really do. I mean, people don't like to be told to, to stay locked at home, but this isn't... Uh, this isn't an individual thing. I mean, we're all reliant on all of us to do this. Uh, and so the best way to beat it is to just, you know, keep keep going, stay isolated, keep socially distanced uh, until it really is beat for good. Yeah, well, and that goes back to something we discussed briefly last week, right? That idea of, you know, if you're living in a major urban center, a New York or, a, you know, a Toronto or Chicago and L.A., it's not just about you. Um, you may think that you're you're living in a nanny state and that the that the government is hamstrung your ability to enjoy your individual freedoms but it's not just about you it's that when you go out and you step onto that bus or onto that subway or onto that busy busy street um, you're potentially impacting the health and well-being of others and i think that's that's the key that's what we have to keep in perspective uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, how's the mask uh, situation there? Are they available in stores? Do you have them or still, still a big shortage? 
still still a big shortage. Um, actually, interestingly, a friend of ours is coming by later today, and she has made us, my family, a bunch of a bunch of masks, and that's become kind of a common uh, common occurrence because they're still very very difficult to come by in stores, and anything that comes into the country is still being reserved for frontline workers who who themselves are still facing a shortage. Of, of masks, which is really, really quite, quite concerning. Okay. I mean, I did want to touch this week on uh, some of the PR implications of what's happening um, with COVID-19 because, um, you know, you're seeing some companies, um, you know, be proactive in, in sort of dealing with it, especially if it directly affects their business. And I'm thinking, you know, mainly of such as the NBA or or, uh, or the NHL or Major League Baseball. I mean, they're they're big businesses that are sort of they're they're putting out um, information routinely to sort of keep people up to date uh, and try and let them know how COVID nineteen is affecting um, their business. We know that many sports leagues have been suspended already, but it looks like this could still um, carry on longer. Although I believe the PGA Tour said they would restart uh, in the middle of June. Golf is a little bit different. Um, just in the nature of, of, of the sport, it's not quite as, you know, full contact as some of the other sports out there. Uh, but, but I mean, that's another example of, you know, it's, it's a sign that things are starting to come back, uh, even if it's little by little, and even if it's not going to be the same. I think especially in the case of the PGA, um, they, they're not going to have fans there. So it's going mm. to be, uh, you know, a televised event mainly. But, you know, it's still uh, digging into sort of how many people need to work at a PGA uh, a tournament or a stop on the tour, and it's around a thousand. So you're thinking of you know everyone that's got to, uh, you know the drivers and and I mean the ones who are driving, not the actual driver that you would hit a golf ball with, um, but drivers and and food people and assistants and you know it's still a lot, and you're still going to have the broadcast crews there. Um, so even in even in that scaled down state, it's going to be it's going to still be a lot of people there and it's still a risk because it just takes one person, one person who doesn't know they have it and they're not showing symptoms that can, you know, shut everything down again really quickly. Mm, absolutely. It's, it's interesting you say that. I uh, had a, had a chat with a, a client the other day who works in the, the music industry. Um, and you know, he was, he was talking about, shows concerts and how you know even when there's an easing of restrictions and people going back to work and and out walking around the streets freely it's going to be a lot longer before you're going to see a timetable of of big big shows where you've got gatherings and some people in one collective space and that even when you're sort of given the okay um by the government to do that that you're going to see a significant just general reluctance from individuals to get together in a room with thousands or tens of thousands of other people. Um, I think there's going to be a, a certain a certain segment of the population where we're just going to see a, a paranoia about not wanting to be in groups of people out of concern for their for their health and well-being. One of the companies I wanted to talk about today, though, uh, is one that uh, I think is now a household name, uh, and that's Zoom. And Zoom has actually been around for a few years, and it's been a it's been a popular tool. But I think you know because of the, the the spread of the virus, you know more and more people have become accustomed with it and are using it, and you know usage has has skyrocketed. But I want to run down because here's here's an example of a company that kind of did everything right because they grew so quickly, but kind of did everything wrong, and it's obviously impacted them quite a bit. Uh, 
just this, I believe it was in the last week or it could have been the week before, you know, parts of the U.S. government said their staff cannot install Zoom uh, on their phones or their, or their computers just because, you know, the software in some ways actually acts like a virus. It controls your computer. It opens up ports, um, things like that. And I went through um, a sort of the Zoom chronology and I did this actually as part of a, another project, but once I went through it and I knew a lot of this, but when you put it all together, it's actually kind of shocking what this company um, was getting away with. So, I mean, the first thing is it was actually last summer. It was last July. And there was actually a developer uh, who discovered that zoom was installing a server on computers that were running the Mac OS operating system without any notification of the user, without telling the user that, that this server was being installed. Now, Zoom probably did that just to make it you know, faster to, to you know, launch the app and connect, which is really what they are very good at doing. But the issue with the server is the blogger actually approached Zoom several times and said, hey, you should fix this. You know, this is a serious problem. And then it was discovered that even if a user, if you had Zoom on your Mac early in 2019, and you uninstalled Zoom, Zoom would leave the server on your computer and leave it running without notifying you. This is, this is how a virus works. It's when it takes action without telling you and without your approval uh, and then maintains a connection with the Zoom servers. And this was ostensibly done, again, so it would be easy if someone had uninstalled Zoom and somebody sent them a Zoom link for a call you know, the server would be there, it could activate quickly, get the software onto the computer, and, and the call could go ahead. But it was all done in the background and all without the user uh, approving it, which is really, really dangerous. So, so let me, you know, for somebody who's not as technically proficient as I know, I know you are, um, can, you, can you explain to me, I mean, the benefit? I mean, what's the clear benefit to Zoom in, in doing that? So we don't know all of it. I mean, we can only sort of take a look at it and say, okay, like, what were they doing this for? And their, their reasoning is that it just made it easier to reinstall the software. So it's almost leaving, uh, it's leaving a server on your computer that can quickly check and then take action. Um, so if you don't have Zoom, it can get it for you quickly and install it. I mean, Zoom's big selling point is that it's fast. So if I send you a Zoom link and you click it, it almost doesn't matter if you have Zoom on your computer because actually they do have a web interface, but um, it can also just download the software as quickly as it can. So it tries to lower the, the or reduce the friction as much as possible. And that server helped them do that. Um, but I mean, it was, it was completely unethical. I, I, people can sort of see why they may have done that. And that's their official excuse for that server. But, um, you know, it's still very questionable behavior. Well, I mean, so how would, how would you have dealt with that well, from, me, from the company's perspective? Sure. Let me carry on. Well, uh, you know, uh, the first thing I would have done is tried to get it resolved when the blogger had reached out to, to Zoom. Um, it was actually just a regular technical blogger that found this um, and, and tried to notify Zoom. And he's documented it very well on his blog. And um, I'll put that in our show notes if, if people want to go through it. Um, anyway, that was sort of the, the, the first issue. Oh, I should add one more thing. Actually, this is a big thing. <laughs> that server was also able to activate uh, the user's web camera. 
I can't believe I didn't mention that as well. Uh, so that was part of the server. Uh, and again, I'm sure wow. Zoom may have been thinking this is for legitimate purposes when someone's going to do a, a phone call. But it is it is access to a computer that the user didn't authorize. So, uh, you know, it's a major, major secure, security issue. And Zoom did apologize for that and issued a security patch, you know, in a couple of days. However, in December of 2019, Cisco, you know, Cisco, the big uh, IT company. Sure. Uh, talked about uh, a flaw in Zoom's software. And they identified it as, Zoom software, as vulnerable to security threats, such as unauthorized internet access to Cisco video devices. So this is for a plug. It's called Zoom Connector. So if if you use Cisco products, if you uh, sort of install this, it's almost like a plug-in or an extension, a Zoom Connector. And it basically had created this, this unauthorized access uh, to Cisco video devices. I mean, again, it's just, it's really unethical or it's really sloppy, you know, coding or both. Um, but it doesn't stop there on March 26. So now we're getting close to the present. Uh, there was news began to circulate that zoom was sending the personal data of iOS users to Facebook, even if they did not have a Facebook account. And again, with no notification to the user. So what? it's pretty well known that Facebook has what are, what are uh, dubbed dark profiles. So even if a person does not have a Facebook account, Facebook still knows a lot about that person because all it takes is, you know, me, I've got 2,000 people in my contacts list. And when you install an app or you install Facebook or you install, actually Facebook, we'll use in this example, um, you know, I, I, I tell Facebook, you can have access to my contacts to see if there's anybody, you know, that's on Facebook I can connect with. Uh, Facebook gets all that data from my contacts list. It matches it with people on Facebook. And then it has these other names of people who are not on Facebook. But I'm just me, right? Someone else uploads their contacts to Facebook. And it's got a little more detail about those people. And slowly, Facebook can build a profile of people, even if they don't have a Facebook account. So when this came out a while ago, it was, it was quite scandalous. Um, but it's, uh, you know, Facebook operates that way. And so, it, you know, it became an issue when when it was revealed just in March, I mean, we're talking just several weeks ago, uh, that Zoom was sending personal data to Facebook, uh, whether the user had a Facebook account or not. So what data was included? It was, it was when the user opened the app, details of your device that the app was installed on, uh, such as model, time zone, city they're connecting from, which phone carrier they're using, and a unique advertiser identifier. I don't want to get too much into the technical side, um, but but I mean this this information, even though it's not it's not scandalous personal information, but it's really important information in terms of you know you can really start to figure out what someone's like, what their day is like, what they do when you have this kind of data because you merge it with data from elsewhere that maybe Facebook has collected. So, um, but the main issue is just the data was going to Facebook without asking the user permission. That's all they had to do but they didn't. Has there been any, any clarification as to what sort of, if any backdoor dealings there were between zoom and Facebook? I mean, presumably it wasn't an accident that zoom was pushing this data to Facebook. I mean, there must've been some agreement on some level between the two companies that, Hey, you know, you pay us some money and we'll, we'll figure out a way to ship you this data. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, if, if you open a new app and it says you can connect via Facebook, um, 
I mean, sometimes Facebook can embed itself in other apps that way. Uh, and that is done, you know, um, with full disclosure in, in normal cases. And it speeds up sort of the install or the setup of an account. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, it's not unheard of that the, the, this data would go to Facebook, but just usually other companies would ask the permission first, or at least, you know, explain to the user that this is what's happening. So I, the issue really is not the sending of personal data, although that is an issue. It's just the user not having the option, not being aware and not having the option to opt out. That's the scandalous part. Let me carry on, though. A few days after that, so Zoom did apologize for that, and they issued a patch, and they stopped sending the data to Facebook. Um, but a few days after that, Zoom was found to be bypassing the standard protocols when installing on a Mac. So if you install a compute, uh, an app, you know, you'll, you'll double-click it, and it will say, you know, do you want to proceed? Yes. You know, you're going to use this much space on your computer. Yes. You know, we're going to put it here. Is that okay? Yes. And then the app installs. That's not an exact breakdown. I'm not installing a, uh, an app right now, so I can't remember exactly all the steps. But the point is, the, the app asks you permission for these things, and then the install begins. What Zoom was doing is skipping that. So when it says something like, you know, this app is going to have, um, you know, take up this much space, is that okay? And you press okay. What it was doing is installing the entire thing right away without going through the other steps. Uh, which again, it's 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 not a it's not a huge issue from a technical side. You know, they, they're trying to speed up the process, and they sort of skipped a few steps to go faster. But again, it's when you combine that with their past, it becomes a much bigger deal. If it was a one-off, all right. Uh, but we can see here that they're either sloppy or careless. You know, or, you know, these are the things that they they knew, they did and knew full well uh, that they were doing it and didn't care. Um, and then one more, March 31st now. It's coming fast and furious. Uh, Zoom video, Zoom always said that their video conversations were encrypted end to end. And I don't want to get too much into the technology, but it basically means it's, um, you know, whatever video or messaging or whatever that you're sending to somebody, it's scrambled. So, you know, if a hacker even had access to that, they wouldn't be able to make sense of it. They wouldn't be able to watch it. They wouldn't be able to know what, what it was about. Um, but there were questions about whether this was actually encrypted. And Zoom came out and said, actually, yeah, it's not. It's not encrypted. <laughs> so the entire time since they began as a company, they've been saying these are end-to-end -end encrypted. And they were lying there is encryption. What happens is from, if you're on, let's say you and I are having a Zoom conversation, Ewan. You speak into your mic and your camera and that data that leaves your computer is encrypted as it goes to Zoom's servers where it's, de okay. where it's decrypted and Zoom then has access to everything. And then from Zoom's server to me, which is the route that it takes if you and I are having conversation, it's encrypted from the Zoom server to me. So it's difficult for a third party to, to get in there, but Zoom put itself right in the middle. And normally end-to-end -end means from you to me. No, no, no one in between. That is end-to-end. -end. But actually Zoom is in between, and Zoom has access to everything, actually. Um, again, there, there are technical challenges when dealing with video conferencing because it, it, it uses up a lot of data, and there's only so many ways you can do it. And my understanding is other companies also do it this way, uh, with their own servers, but they don't call it end-to-end. -end. 
So again, it was, a, it was sort of a dishonesty issue. Then it was discovered. <laughs> you know, Zoom, Zoom uh, a lot of their staff are actually in mainland China. Uh, and then it was discovered that these conversations that were happening between, you know, two people in Europe or people in North America and Europe or Africa or wherever, uh, a lot of those were going through servers in China. Uh, and of course, the laws in China are very different. You know, the government definitely, there, there's quite strict regulations around sort of setting up uh, data centers in, in mainland China. So, I mean, obviously, that's another issue uh, with security. Basically, just, you know, concerns over over the Chinese government and its access to information. Uh, so that was that was another issue. And then the, the last one actually happened on, on April 1st, uh, where Zoom had basically a mistake. It was a loophole, and it was providing thousands of users' email addresses and photos to complete strangers. So that was showing up. For, for people. These were all covered in the media, but it's more in the tech press. And sometimes I think, you know, regular folks that are using this tool are unaware of these things, even though they're covered quite heavily in the technolo technology press. Um, but this is an example. I mean, Zoom, they have a great product. It is fast. It is reliable. I actually like it. But as a company, when you have this many problems and they are, you know, this close together, I mean, this started in July of last year, so less than a year ago, you know, and it looks like there's, you know, six or seven major security issues. Uh, it's, um, it, it does raise questions about whether you want to do business with Zoom. And I don't know you, and I know you're using Microsoft Teams, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty reliant on Teams. I mean, there's been some, you know, it was, it was sort of interesting right out of the gate um, in in legal circles, everybody was singing the praises of Zoom of, hey, you know, we know the courts are closed. That's okay. We can have remote uh, examinations for discovery. We can have, continue to have um, mediations. We'll do it all through Zoom. It's safe. It's secure. Um, and then some of this information, now much of what you just talked about, I was completely unaware of. I mean, I knew that there was some serious security issues, um, but there was a, almost a, an immediate flip-flop within the, the legal community of, oh no, we, we, we clearly cannot rely on this product. Um, and, you know, as you pointed out, it may be very, very quick and user-friendly, but I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing in privileged and confidential discussions. I mean, if ever there is an area where where data security is key, it's it's in the legal sector. So, yeah, we, we've seen a lot of people moving away from Zoom. And I think the problem is, at least from what I've read, is there there is yet to be sort of a reliable alternative that is is quick and easy. And like so many other tech products that we've seen over the years, be it Facebook, um, what have you, people generally seem to be prepared to compromise their data for the convenience of a, of a product that works. Yeah, that's very true. The PR angle to all of this, though, uh, and, and, you know, Zoom has been responding to most of these incidents uh, one by one. But um, after the most recent one with the uh, data going through China, the CEO of Zoom uh, published a blog post, uh, and it's a little bit lengthy. Um, and I can link to it in the show notes. Obviously, I don't want to go through the whole thing. But I will say the tone and the language of it is quite defensive. So it, uh, it lists the reasons why these issues may have happened. And that includes, you know, the exponential growth of the platform. Uh, apparently, last December, they were getting, I believe it was 20 million users. 
remember if it was per day or per week. Uh, okay, here we are. At the end of December last year, the maximum number of daily meeting participants conducted on Zoom was 10 million. And in March of this year, it reached more than 200 million daily meeting participants. That's both free and paid. So, I mean, it's wow. it's a massive, massive uh, increase. And obviously, that's bandwidth, that's server demand. I mean, that's all, they have to scale up to, to manage that. Um, and it is actually a legit thing to add uh, to their to their um, in in their defense. Um, and the other one is they you know they said they're they built this product for the enterprise primarily, uh, and you know they weren't prepared for you know all the social video chats and you know all these other things um, that were happening. Um, on this excuse, I I don't buy it because enterprise needs security and much more so than than sort of average users would. Uh, and so you'd think if they were geared for the enterprise, usually, you know, software houses or, or, or apps or services, you know, they will ensure that their security is to a very high standard uh, because that's what enterprises require. They can't use them. You know, I've been in those situations before. Um, so that one doesn't work. But I think, you know, without going through the whole thing, and I, like I say, I will, I will, uh, I will link to it in the show notes. Have a take, have a look at it, uh, and, you know, and let me know because I think one area that they really missed out on is to focus on the positive things that Zoom has done. So they opened the letter, you know, talking about you know this is why this happened and this is why this happened and you know we we didn't anticipate X um, and so on and so forth. But the one area they could have taken with this is all of the ways that Zoom has played such an important role even during this pandemic. You know, there's a lot of uh, first responders or, or healthcare workers that are, you know, going to other cities like New York to help out. You know, it keeps families in touch. It keeps colleagues in touch. It keeps businesses, you know, small businesses running. I mean, there's so many good angles to take. And you can say that Zoom has been this really important connector during a very difficult time. And it's done so very reliably. And, uh, you know, it's very cost effective. I mean, most, most people are using it for free. Um, and really look at the good the company has done. It touches on that a little bit, but I think, you know, if I were looking at this for sort of with a PR hat on, that would be the one area where I think they really dropped the ball. And you can see, I'm kind of surprised with Zoom, you know, at the, at the size it's at today, that they don't, they're, they're, not, um, they're not a little more, uh, I can't think of the right word to say, but basically that they should have more knowledge of PR slash news cycles. Um, you know, slash how things are received by by the public because uh, it really didn't work for them. Well, I mean, what what formal changes uh, have they made to the product, though? I mean, that that would be my question. I mean, I understand that from a PR perspective, part of what you need to convey is, okay, we made a mistake. There needs to be some admission, but I mean, there needs to be also some clarification in terms of what steps they're taking as as a company and as a product. I mean, was that addressed in the in sort of the PR statement adequately anyway? Um, yeah, they do address that. And actually, that's sort of the first thing that they address. Uh, you know, and they, they say repeatedly, you know, we take these issues seriously. We take security and privacy uh, very seriously. I mean, I mean, what they're doing uh, is really trying to slow down development and focus on solving these issues around security, because that's now obviously the biggest issue. Uh, facing the company, and so they they are taking action, and the uh, and the, and the blog post does go through that. I I don't think you know I, I do think all of the information that uh, the company should provide is there. Uh, I think it's a little bit long. I think it could be tightened up a little bit. So I don't I don't you know quibble with that 
for me, it's really the tone. If something comes across as defensive, uh, people people tend to think that maybe the company doesn't take it too seriously. You know, almost like they're they're the company's a bit angry for some reason. You know, and having to defend itself, uh, right. and that's always a huge red red flag for me because if that's the reaction, if it's to say you know, oh, but we couldn't have expected this or, oh, but, you know, this got much bigger than we, we thought it would. I mean, I know that's difficult. I know those are challenges. But at the end of the day, they are still accountable, you know. Uh, and I think taking that accountability uh, is really important. And I think the tone just seems a bit off. Anyway, we do recommend people take a look at that. I will include it in the show notes. And, and, and please let me know uh, what you think. Um, okay. Last week's show was well over an hour, and we don't want to, or not well over an hour, but over an hour. We don't want to do that today, so I want to move on. Each week, we do want to try and tackle some, some PR or, or legal issue, um, and Ewan, I want to move into the, the legal item today, um, which is, you know, we talk about how companies are, are managing PR around COVID, uh, like Zoom, even though Zoom was not directly about COVID. Um, mm-hmm. What are happening to employers who are communicating with their own staff? And I think back to the sports example earlier, uh, you know, there's some crazy ideas out there of the NBA or the NHL going to, you know, somewhere in North Dakota, and having all the teams there and playing all the games there in sort of a, a bubble. Um, but then mm-hmm. the question was, would, would players want to do that? Would, would the executives in these companies, in these teams want to do that? Because it does mean that they're far away from their families, kind of sequestered almost, which could be for several months at the you know, several weeks at, at, at the minimum. And can companies ask that of their staff? And, you know, where do we sit here? If people don't feel comfortable, like I have to go back to work tomorrow. Um, you know, that's mm-hmm. something I've been told to do. But if I didn't feel comfortable going to work, what rights would I have? What rights do employees have sort of as they manage this crisis along with their employers? Well, it's, it's a great, great, great question. It's probably one of the most common questions um, I, myself and, and our firm has been fielding over the last number of weeks. Um, and again, you know, it really depends on where you live and sort of the governing statutes and particular regulations in, in your given jurisdiction. I mean, I can tell you in, in most provinces in Canada, at least, you know, an employer has a duty and an obligation to provide a safe working environment for their employees. Um, And as an extension of that, employees have a right to refuse unsafe work. So, you know, at least specifically in in Ontario, it's kind of an interesting process in terms of how it works. So if I wanted to take the position that, you know, I don't want to go into my office, my employer is telling me, hey, I want you to come to work, it's safe. And I take the position, well, I don't know that it is safe. Um, I don't know that you're, you're cleaning the environment adequately. I don't know that things are sufficiently sanitized. Um, perhaps there was, uh, you know, a, a worker who had um, contracted COVID-19, and therefore you wouldn't want to be in that environment as well. You can refuse working. You can refuse, say, I don't feel comfortable coming into work. At that point, what happens is the government gets involved. Uh, and again, this is specific to the province of Ontario. There are some other jurisdictions in Canada where it functions similarly, where the government then has to, to come in, the Ministry of Labor specifically, and make a determination as to whether or not the working environment is safe enough for the employee to go into work. Um, now, of course, 
that's not really a practical solution given what's going on because there are just too many um, working environments that could potentially be deemed to be unsafe. So, and that's where things get really, really complicated for an employee. There Sorry, are legal I, I'm, I'm going to cut you off. How, how do you determine hmm. if, a, if a workplace is safe or unsafe? Well, and, and there, therein, lies, therein lies the question, right? If you have an employer who is putting in writing saying, look, we've taken adequate steps, we're sanitizing on a day-to-day basis, we're practicing social distancing, it is safe for you to come in, and the employee refuses and continues to refuse, then, yeah, I mean, there could be, there could be some grounds for, for disciplinary measures at that point um, from the employer's perspective. Um, but again, how do you prove it? How do, how do you prove that it's safe? The mechanism as it exists in a lot of jurisdictions is, you know, a, a representative from the Ministry of Labor has to come in and make that determination. And, and that's just not really practical. There's just too many, too many concerns like this. So we're sort of operating in terms of, um, I don't want to say an, an, an honor system, but um, there's really, really no adequate measure to determine with any level of certainty um, that the employer has done everything that they can in their power. Um, obviously, they could face some very, very serious repercussions if they haven't. So it's certainly in their best interest to do so. Um, but it, it's, it's a really, really difficult issue to deal with for both employers and employees. Okay, Ewan, so we don't know, you know, whether or not the, the, the office or the workplace is safe and the employer is saying that, you know, they're doing everything they can to, to ensure that it's safe for the employees. And you said that, you know, maybe the employee could be potentially let go by refusing to go into work. So, I mean, that's under COVID, but what happens now? Like, what if somebody, you know, working on a construction site or in a doctor's office or anywhere where something's going on that they don't feel safe and so they don't want to go into work? Do they have the right to do that? And how is that determined? You mean in a, in a non-COVID climate, we're assuming for yes. for a moment that everything's back to normal and um, it's a normal working environment. Yeah, or before COVID, you know, because sure, I'm sh- sure this must have come up at other times with uh, you know employees just saying they don't feel safe by the way things are done or, you know, equipment or some risk that they saw. How, how, is, how is that normally resolved? Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, you have a you have a mechanism under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, and and that would then you would assert to your employer, I don't feel safe coming into work because of you know X, Y, and Z, insufficient safety equipment, what have you, whatever the particular issue is. And at that point, the Ministry of Labor would get involved, and a representative from the Ministry of Labor would come out to your work environment, would assess the situation, and would make a determination as to whether or not. Um, the employee is justified in refusing that work. If they are, then they would issue a decision and talk about whatever remedies the employer is obliged to make to ensure that the working environment is in fact safe for the employee to then come back to work. Or they render a decision saying, you know what, no, everything is safe and sufficient. The employer has done everything that they need to do from a, from a legal perspective. You can come back to work. They don't need to provide you with any, any, any further assurances. That's that's how it would typically work in a normal context. Okay, okay. So I can see why this is going to be more difficult with COVID. Well, exactly, right? Because it's just not practical for a representative from the Ministry of Labor to to come into every working environment where you have an employee who has raised the issue that, hey, I'm 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 being subjected to an unsafe working environment, and even if they could, you know, what what sort of ability does a representative from the Ministry of Labor 
I mean, what sort of um, expertise do they have to make a determination as to whether or not a, a working environment has been adequately sanitized, for example? I mean, are they wiping, you know, doorknobs or, um, you know, elevator buttons or, you know, desks and computers uh, adequately? I mean, there's just so many, so many variables um, at play that it, it's really not practical. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned another case uh, which really interested me. And it's not it, it's not the same sort of about safety, although it's related. And um, I believe this was a, a lawsuit in Chicago where uh, an employee showed up to work and, and that employee's co-worker had COVID-19. Is that correct? And can you talk about this? Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely an interesting piece of piece of litigation. Um, yeah, it was in just outside of Chicago, I believe it was in Illinois. It was at a Walmart and, um, it was an employee who had gotten sick and ultimately died of COVID-19 complications. And then a second store employee at the same Walmart, um, died from COVID-19 related complications four days later. Um, Walmart didn't close the store, even though it knew or, or, you know, should have known, frankly, that employees and others at the store had had COVID-19 symptoms. Are they required so, legally to shut down if there is like, is there a law that says they have to do that? Or is it just, just sort of good practice? Well, again, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can't speak to, to, to what the, the state of the law is in, um, in Illinois. Um, but the, the lawsuit certainly alleges that Walmart, and then this was a lawsuit that was uh, filed by the the family of the the first individual that that ultimately died, and their allegation is that Walmart failed to warn this individual and other employees that there were coworkers um, at the Walmart that had COVID nineteen symptoms, and I mean if that is true, if if Walmart was aware that there were employees within this particular, um, this particular store that had COVID-19 related symptoms and they weren't adequately protecting their employees, then again, I mean, I'm not familiar with the law in the state of Illinois, but I suspect there would, there's presumably some safeguards within that state that would say that, you know, an employee, much like most jurisdictions in Canada, has a right to, to work in a safe working environment. So I think there could be um, some potential, some potential liability from Walmart's perspective, and I think really on a from a broader, a broader perspective, I think this is really just tip of the iceberg kind of stuff. I think we're going to see a number of class action lawsuits that are going to follow of uh, large companies who were aware, obviously, uh, of of COVID nineteen employees or employees that had contracted COVID-19 or were showing COVID-19 symptoms and didn't take adequate steps to protect their their staff. Um, I think it, it, particularly in the U.S., I mean, we're just going to see the floodgates open in that regard. And I, I'm, it's going to be really interesting to see how the respective courts address it. Okay, let me jump into the employer's shoes. So you mentioned about COVID-19 symptoms. Now, this... Uh this happened several weeks ago. I mean, let's say I'm an employer of a Walmart and somebody, uh, you know, gets a cough. I, you know, there, there wasn't much testing going on back then. And 
I don't know necessarily that that's COVID-19 because coughs are extremely common if it was a cough or, you know, what, what, any symptom sort of related to COVID-19. So, I mean, it, it should be difficult to hold the employer accountable for that, wouldn't it be? Because they don't know, like they literally don't know that their employee has COVID-19 unless they, unless they did, of course, unless for, for some reason they knew. Well, well, yeah. I mean, this this is something that that um, Amazon was dealing with. I believe that, that there was uh, recently an employee who had sort of raised similar concerns because I believe that Amazon's policy was that, hey, if you contract COVID nineteen, we'll give you a week's leave paid. Um, and someone said, well, fine, but that's not really practical either because if I have to wait upwards of a week or however long to get tested because testing isn't readily available, um, you know, and then I have to wait for those results for the test to then get them back to my employer to then be in a position to say, yes, I have COVID-19. I need to take this, this leave from, from work. Um, in that, in that time period, if you were, if you were infected, you could potentially have infected, you know, gosh knows how many how many other employees in your immediate vicinity so you're absolutely right it's 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 not particularly practical but I, again i think there are some companies that have done really really well in this in taking a very very strong stance saying hey if you have any related symptoms go home don't come in stay home um and there have been other employers who just haven't taken such a strong stance and I, I think they could potentially be opening themselves to some to some litigation going forward uh this walmart case will be really really interesting to follow um and there will most certainly be other cases that will follow as well yeah for sure I, I agree with you i think this is just the the tip of the iceberg i mean um the amount of economic damage that is being caused by this and you know the number of people who have lost their jobs or gotten sick and died you know families um you know could be compensated as well if the employer uh, was found negligent i mean it's just it's such a huge issue and it's also global like this stuff could be happening in you know in any country in the world so i don't think we've ever seen anything like this before yeah, well, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you about this was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd looked at what was Walmart's response, at least to the the, um, the initial filing of the of the suit. Um, and I, I wanted to read you some of what their response was, because I was just curious to get your take in terms of how companies should be responding to these sorts of sorts of issues. Sure. They said, um, and this is a quote, we are heartbroken at the passing of two associates. We took action to reinforce our cleaning and sanitizing measures. The store passed a third party safety and environmental compliance assessment. Additionally, we have taken steps across the country to protect our associates and customers, including additional cleaning measures. Now, you know, that's that's an excerpt. It's not the not the full response. But I mean, can what what sort of tone? I mean, what sort of tone should a company be taking in a situation like this? You know, yeah, I see that this is an excerpt of the of the response, so it's it's hard to say. Um, but I think the tone. I mean, it's not the same as the Zoom situation, but but anytime you have some someone who's died, you know, or someone who suffered a very severe consequence, um, you know, the company has to be extremely humble and and recognize what happened. I mean, that's. I think people want to know that the company understands and they understands the pain that they're feeling. They understand 
how their lives have changed and how serious this is. I think a lot of times the biggest mistake in these situations is companies come out and they basically just start, you know, listing how they're going to improve without the humanity behind it. I think a good example of this is actually, you know, when United Airlines um, hauled that guy off the, off the flight uh, in sort of a violent, gruesome way. And, you know, their initial response, I actually wrote about this at the time, so I can link to that in the show notes as well. Um, their initial response was extremely cold, and it, and it didn't work, and there was more criticism of United Airlines because people could see the video. They could see how this man was treated. And, you know, people picture themselves in that man's position, and, you know, it's, it, it really generates genuine outrage and anger. And... Um, you know, in Walmart's case, it's slightly different, but I do think that, you know, understanding what's happening, recognizing what's happening, um, you know, just to show that they get it and then follow up with, we never want to see this happen again. And here are the steps we're going to take to make sure it doesn't happen again. And it looks like in their response that they do touch on that. Um, and I don't know how in-depth they've gone because I haven't read the whole response, but I would think, you know, on the PR side, this is where PR can kind of lead the business, which is not common. But, you know, in terms of, of, of PR advice, you would say, you know, there's got to be a new policy for staff if they don't feel comfortable or if they sense one of their coworkers uh, has symptoms or if they're starting to feel symptoms. Like there's got to be a new protocol in place that deals with this situation. And, um, you know, because you can anticipate what some of the criticism is going to be. Uh, and what some of the anger is going to be like and try and head that off. You know, what, what do people want to hear? What, what will make, you know, Walmart employees, current Walmart employees and their families feel better and understand that we take their safety seriously. And so, you know, those steps are really important. And it looks like they have taken some, but I'd have to go through the whole thing to, to, to really assess it properly. Yeah, well, and there, you know, there's also some really interesting economic consequences to this, <coughs> right? I mean, uh, if... If you are an employee and you do decide, hey, my working environment's unsafe, I'm not going to come in and you have an accommodating employer. And, you know, my advice to, to all of my clients is, you know what, don't don't make this unnecessarily difficult. If somebody is is saying that they don't feel safe coming in, don't put yourself in a situation where you're compelling them to do so. Even if you have taken every step under the sun to ensure that you're, you're providing a safe working environment, um, you know, let them take that leave. The problem from the employee's perspective is that that's then an unpaid leave. It's a, you know, effectively they're, they're temporarily laid off. They can apply for, for EI and what have you, given the very, very specific and unprecedented nature of COVID-19. Um, but you know, that's arguably, it, it's just a percentage of their overall salary. So they're compromising their financial and economic interests in taking that position. And in, in a lot of circumstances, particularly in the United States, where they don't have those sort of social safety nets, you, you don't have an option. Um, you know, I, I heard about a case of, uh, uh, of a, um, an ambulance driver, a, a paramedic, something, something to, that, to that effect. And he has no health insurance and he can't afford to not work because he requires a salary. And it, it was just this completely bizarre situation where you have an individual, a frontline front line worker in, in, in these circumstances who is continuing to go out and help and save the lives of, of potential victims of COVID-19 or other health-related issues. And yet he doesn't have any protection himself should he contract 
COVID-19. And he's not in a financial position to say, I'm going to refuse this, this unsafe work um, because he doesn't have he doesn't have the financial means to, to make that choice. And that's really, really, really sad. I think that's one of the, you know, the most unfortunate realities that's come out of this situation is that people are having to make the choice of paying their rent um, versus keeping themselves safe or putting groceries on the table versus keeping themselves safe. And nobody frankly should be in that, in that position. Yeah. I think, you know, this seems like a big loophole to me because it's ripe for abuse on both sides. I mean, if, if you can say, you know, I feel unsafe at work, that's almost like a get out of jail free card if you just don't want to go in. And I'm sure that's a very, you know, people who are not going into work genuinely mean it when they say they're, they don't feel safe there, but it's still ripe for abuse. And it's ripe for abuse from the employer because they can say, no, it is, it's fine. It is safe. We assist it. It's fine. Now come in. Um, and when maybe it's not safe. So, I think there's well, I think, be... I think the at least the employer, and I'm sorry, sorry to interject, but at least I think from the employer's perspective, they're really putting themselves in a potentially compromised position. That if they're if they're taking the position that no, no, it is safe, um, and they they they're not certain. And frankly, I don't know how you could possibly be certain that no, 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 you can come in. It's it's safe. Um, if anything was to go go sideways or go wrong, if you were to develop symptoms and and ultimately. Um, develop COVID-19, I think it, that would just be, that could be terrible. It could be catastrophic if you're dealing with a large enough workforce. If you're telling hundreds of employees potentially, no, 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 hey, it's safe, come on back. Um, and one employee contracts COVID. Um, that's a huge, huge problem for employers. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. I think, um, I, I do think there should be some sort of appeals process though, somewhere in there you know, where, where a third party can take a look at it and judge whether, you know, the employee's concern is valid or whether the employer's reassurances are sufficient. Uh, because it's, it's really, it's, it's hard to say, uh, because there really is literally a, he said, she said in this case. Yeah, sure. And, and again, you know, at least in, in, in most provinces in Canada, there is, there is a, a mechanism, you know, that's triggered where third party does get involved to make to make that decision. Again, I can't I can't speak to what the situation is in uh, in in the U.S. Um, but again, that has to sort of be a practical trigger as well. And if every working environment, if every office space is theoretically unsafe right now or potentially unsafe, um, then it it it. There's just the burden placed on an, an already strapped system under the circumstances can't practically address each individual issue. And I think that's that's one of the one of the problems. Uh, OK, Ewan, we're coming up to an hour, if you can believe it. And there's one more one more item I wanted to talk about. And I, I, I never thought I would go down this path, to be honest. But a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I, I know you watched this, uh, Bill Maher. Uh, formerly of Politically Incorrect. He's been on American television forever. I've actually seen him in person at Madison Square Garden uh, a few years ago. Um, but he had a rather controversial closing uh, editorial to his show a, a week ago. Uh, so this isn't the most recent one. It was, uh, you know, eight days ago or so. Uh, and it was over the controversy of calling the virus uh, the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. And obviously there's some debate over this because, you know, the president of the United States has decided to call it the Chinese virus. And, I, you know, probably to, you know, as, uh, ascribe 
accountability or responsibility uh, for, for what has happened. Whereas people have said, you know, there's, there's um, racist attacks against Asian Americans that, um, you know, people are angry uh, at Asian Americans or they're angry at Asians um, and may not know who's Asian American and who's not, uh, and it's resulted in some some violence against people. So, you know, should we should we call it the Chinese virus because it's from China, or should we sort of care about the racist undertones uh, that could come from that decision? So, uh, let's hear what Bill Maher said. This is a uh, this is a shortened clip, so it's not the whole thing. Uh, but uh, let's have a listen and have a quick discussion afterwards. This is Bill Maher on his show, Real Time with Bill Maher. This isn't about vilifying a culture. This is about facts. This is about life and death. We're barely four months into this pandemic, and the wet markets in China, the ones where exotic animals are sold and consumed, are already starting to reopen. The PC police say it's racist to attack any cultural practice that's different than our own. I say liberalism lost its way when it started thinking like that. Dr. Fauci says we should force a global closure of the wet markets because the current crisis is a, quote, direct result of them. On Monday, the UN's acting head of biodiversity said the same thing. So when someone says, what if people hear Chinese virus and blame China? The answer is we should blame China, not Chinese Americans. But we can't stop telling the truth because racists get the wrong idea. There are always going to be idiots out there who want to indulge their prejudices. But this is an emergency. All right, Ewan, your thoughts. <laughs> well, you know, Bill seems to be conflating a, a, a number of issues. I think that's probably my first comment. I mean, he says, and I think the you know the the quote was, "It's racist to attack any cultural practice that isn't our own." Well, I mean, calling COVID nineteen the the China virus, um, I I don't think that that's a that's not a cultural practice. It's it's an identifier of of a particular virus. And one thing that I thought was kind of interesting was, I went um, I went and I looked at the WHO's website, because I was, I was curious, well, how did they come up with the name in the first place? What's the, what's the actual origin of the name? So the virus was identified on February 11th, um, as severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus two in parentheses, SARS-CoV-2. Um, the disease state, which the virus causes was labeled by the WHO on the same day, uh, so again, that's February 11th as COVID-19. And the reason it was labeled COVID-19 is because the virus is, and this is this is a direct quote from the WHO's website, the virus is genetically related to the coronavirus responsible for the SARS outbreak of 2003, end quote. So, I mean, you know, the point being, just putting the politics aside for a moment, there's a very specific scientific reason the virus was labeled COVID-19. While the disease was first identified in Wuhan, China, you know, we, we can't simply alter the scientific name in the interests of facilitating or validating a particular political agenda. So, look, I, I, I take his point. Yes, it originated from Wuhan. Fine. We, we, can, we can talk about that. We can have a conversation about that. We can have a conversation about China's liability in all of this. And, you know, as, a, as a, a brief aside, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but, you know, there's already been some, some litigation 
um, in the United States of a, a number of small businesses. I believe there is one in, in California of a number of small businesses that are suing China for $8 trillion. Um, I mean, that's not even a possibility for reasons that perhaps we can go into next week. But I get it. They, they have to accept some liability here. But to change the name from what it was readily identified scientifically because of its relationship to SARS, to China virus, to facilitate some sort of political agenda, that's not attacking a cultural practice that isn't our own, as, as Bill suggests. To me, that's something entirely different. Um, yeah, so I guess I kind of disagree with you just on what Bill Maher was saying. I, I don't think... I mean, even the president, I haven't heard anyone say they want to change the official name of the virus. They want to also call it or use China virus as uh, sort of a synonym, an, another word to use. Uh, this also okay. Uh, and I think, I have, like I say, I just haven't heard anyone say they want to change it because I think it's understandable that there's sort of a scientific name and, and, and that's fine. But if somebody says China virus, should they be vilified? for that. I guess that's kind of the question because I do, first of all, I, I just want to come cl clean on this. Like I, um, when this discussion started and it was a long time ago because this came out sort of around the time the virus did, um, I was sort of on the side of, yeah, okay. Yeah. COVID-19 or coronavirus. We don't need to call it the Chinese virus, you know, whatever. It's just not, not an issue for me. After I heard what he had to say, I, I get his main point. And his main point is if, if something factual results in racist attacks, we shouldn't change the factual part. We should deal with the attack part. Because calling it China virus shouldn't be a political issue other than political accountability for it. It shouldn't lead to attacks on Asian Americans, which it, it's obviously doing. And, but that's an issue. So how far should we go in terms of regulating speech because we're concerned that some people might misunderstand and then act it seems odd to blame the person who is speaking rather than the person who's doing the attacking. Yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with most of what you said, except to say that, I mean, let's be honest, um, the, the first usage, at least by, um, by President Trump, was very, very specific and very, very intentional. And frankly, it was an attempt to remove any sense of responsibility that may be pointed in his or his administration's general direction for failing to take sufficient or adequate steps in the early stages of the outbreak in the United States. Now, whether that has anything to do with whether or not he should use the term or not, or, or, or you and I should use the term China virus. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't that, think that's it, arguably apples and oranges. I mean, I understand why he said it too. Um, but I mean, it's sort of, that shouldn't really be the issue actually. Like the issue is should, if someone uses the term, should they be penalized or criticized or ostracized for that? Now, obviously these names of viruses are extremely political but if, if it's something, in the Bill Mars case, China virus, okay, well, f from everything we know, it looks like it originated in China. Uh, 
I mean, that doesn't mean all Chinese people are bad, but it does mean it did come from there. And we should take a look at the wet markets and other things, because I do think a reckoning is coming for sure. I mean, the amount of economic damage, we don't know where this started, but let's just, for the sake of argument, say it was somebody who, you know, engaged with a bat, a bat in some way, you know, ate it, whatever. I mean, we don't know. So I don't want to, you know, pretend that, that, that that's what happened for sure. Um, but, but these things... They need to they need to be cleaned up um, because of the amount of damage that it's done. And I mean, I have heard uh, comparisons to 9/11 because once it was determined, sort of how the hijackers took control of those aircraft, that was addressed. I mean, that was addressed in the months that we went way overboard. In fact, uh, but you know, the simple things about the locked cockpits and and you know tighter security. I know everyone doesn't like security. I'm the same, but we we did something about it so it would not happen again. And he is right. The wet markets are reopening in many places. And so, you know, considering the amount of economic damage to countries outside of China, um, I think there's going to be some real issues. And I also saw uh, just a couple days ago, I think the U.S. made it possible for for citizens and companies to sue China for the economic damage. So this is a story that's going to go on and on for years and years and years. Well, you know, look, and I think we should put that on the back burner. Let's talk about that next week because there's a lot of very, very um, interesting things we can discuss from a legal perspective around that issue. I guess my, you know, my final point, Cam, would just be I, I don't see these issues as, as mutually exclusive. I don't think we have to call it the China virus in order to demonstrate that China or Wuhan was responsible for the outbreak and failing to take adequate steps. We can call it by its name. We can call it COVID-19 or COVID-20, I guess, as it would, it would be now. Um, we, can, we can call it that and still, still state and take the position that China should be held accountable, should be held responsible, responsible, and should face some very, very serious consequences. I just don't see them as being mutually exclusive. Yeah, very well said, actually. And I'm not coming out here. I better, you know, say this caveat. I'm not suggesting that people should call it Chinese virus. Um, I don't call it Chinese virus. Uh, it's not the way I refer to it at all. But I do think Bill Maher raised some interesting points. And my mind is shifting on the criticism of people who want to use that term. Now, I know that the president is using the term um, literally to ostracize certain people and the Chinese government. And I, and I disagree with, with his reason for it. Um, but if somebody else calls it that way just out of, you know, who knows? Um, I'm, I'm just w wondering if I will be as critical. Um, anyway, you're right. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to say, I mean, look, I mean, th this is this is your bailiwick. I mean, communications, PR, I mean, you know better than most that language is very, very important in press conferences, particularly for from being issued from administrations and their PR reps or the communications reps. You know very, very well that China, the choice of that word, China virus China being allocated as opposed to, you know, the, the more the more technical medical term was chosen for a very, very specific and highly politicized purpose. Right. Agree. Agree. Oh. Agree. Yeah. And I, I mean, we can get into to, into more of this next week, although I can't wait until COVID-19 wraps up because uh, I'm already missing just other topics, other things I going agree. on. I just talked about this to death. Uh, well, maybe that's not a good pun, actually. <laughs> anyway, um, okay. Uh, Probably not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably not. 
All right, uh, we're we're gonna wrap this up. It, it's this still went longer you than I than I, I wanted it to, but uh, I think that's fine. Uh, we'll try and tighten it up next time. So before we leave, I just want to uh, mention: please uh, visit us on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter at PR Law Pod. We are on Instagram at PR Law Pod, and we are also on Facebook. If you want to visit us on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash PR Law pod that's p-r-l-a-w-p-o-d uh and we also welcome you to swing by our website uh which is at www.prlawpod.com and on there you will see a link to uh patreon um and also we do want to take your questions please get in touch with us i think um you know you've got you in here you've got me here if you do have questions about issues or or employment law or situations that you would like uh, like us to talk about, please let us know because uh, we definitely want to tackle those and we want to sort of grow the show and um, definitely make it more interactive um, with people as well. Yeah, absolutely. This is a lot of fun. So that's it for this week. Thank you again, Ewan. Uh, thank you again, listeners. We really appreciate you listening. Uh, and please tell a friend if you enjoy the show and also leave a comment uh, on our show as well. Thank you so much and we'll see you next week. <laughs>